The History with Jackson podcast. Hello and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. I'm your host, Jackson. Now, before I start telling you about this episode, please, 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 if you enjoy the content that we create here at History of Jackson, please do leave a rating and a review. It really helps the podcast grow and helps people understand what we're all about. Now, today's episode is with Steve Tibble, who's a historian and author, and we are talking about his book, Templars, The Knights Who Made Britain, that has recently come out with Yale University Press. Now, Steve is an awesome guest. He really drives into the story of who the British Knights Templar were, their purpose, their role. And I know you're going to enjoy listening to myself and Steve have a conversation about these mysterious figures. And he will also correct a few misconceptions that you might have about this awesome order. Now, without further ado, I will leave you with Steve. So hello and welcome back to the History of Jackson podcast. Today we're talking to author and historian and just all-round great guy, Steve Tibble, about his brand new book with Yale University Press, Templars. I have got a copy here, Templars, The Knights Who Made Britain. How are you doing, Steve? Oh, very good, very good. And lovely to uh, to be talking to you, Jackson. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. And I know I've said it to you, you know, in phone calls or in person, but I really, really enjoyed your book and I'm looking forward to, to talking about it uh, so our listeners can find out more about the Templars. Brilliant. Thank you. I'm really, really pleased you you enjoyed it. I tried to make it accessible. And they're such a crazy group of guys that, you know, it's hard not to uh, to get immersed in it, I find anyway. So uh, yeah, I'm really, I'm really glad that you uh, got something out of it. Well, like, like you said, when you're so accessible, but you really get a feeling for the Templars and you start to feel for the characters that are in your book. But I want to ask you one question. I like to ask this to all, to get all the guests who come on the podcast. What inspired you to write this book? I, th- I think that well, the, the the underlying reason I write about the Crusades is I'm permanently in awe of them. Really, if, if you because I think you and I have such comfortable lives. Well, maybe you don't have such a comfortable life because you play rugby and get broken bones, uh, which I carefully don't do. But you know, I have healthcare. You know, we've got the NHS. I've got life insurance. I've got you know, I've got a sofa. I've got all the luxuries, and uh, I lead you know a very safe, comfortable life, and. I, I'm in awe of people who wake up in the morning, have very few resources, and yet through focus and determination and bravery are able to do great things. So certainly with the Crusades, and it's, you know, this is true for all the, all the um, people who were fighting in the Crusades. I'm not just talking about the European Crusaders. You know, these are people who achieved huge things uh, with almost nothing almost no resources. So I'm, I'm permanently in awe of them, not, not because I can relate to them, but because um, I know I couldn't do what they do. And in a way, I've, I found the Templars are a bit of a, they're almost a, a sublime part of that. They're, they're, they're guys on the extreme. If you take, take the normal crusaders who are doing quite you know, heavily focused stuff and achieving great things, the Templars are even more so. They're like a refined uh, version of, of what that period of history is like to me. And they still loom so large in our popular imagination and our memory, our folk memory, that you'd think there were tens of thousands of them. In fact, there were very few. There were just a few hundred out fighting in the, in the Middle East at any given point. And the impact that this tiny group of people had, I just, I just find uh, 
Wow, totally awesome. And I find it inspirational that, you know, even someone like me, I can actually get up in the morning and achieve a few things. And you look at what they did and you go, oh, my God, I just can't. How can you compete with that? But it is actually it's very, I find it uplifting. You don't have to agree with everything they tried to do, but it's just what the human spirit can achieve and what, whatever direction it aims itself is, is astounding, I think. I totally agree. They are just awesome. And I couldn't, like, like you, I couldn't imagine doing half the things that I even do. So it's it's great to read their story and learn more about them. But we're, we're talking about the Templars, uh, but your book's about the British Templars. So I want to, to want to ask you, you know, who were the Templars? Because we have this image, like you said, of there being thousands and thousands of knights. And more specifically, who were the British Knights Templars? Yes. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jackson. It's, so the book focuses on Britain, partly... Um, partly because I'm British, and so it's sort of, you know, it's an area that's close to home, literally. Um, as as I'm speaking to you now, I'm, I'm walking distance from one Templar preceptory, and when I'm, uh, where I'm going to be on Monday, I'm going to be walking distance from their headquarters. So, you know, they, they are, they have a presence in Britain. They still have a, you know, a ghostly presence. Pretty much every, every part of um, England, particularly England, Scotland, and Wales, less so, sorry, England, Scotland, and Ireland, less so in Wales. Um, but they still have a presence. They have a material presence. The The other way that I wanted to take the story was um, to show how the British Templars were effectively a kind of case study for how the Templars worked in a broader sense. Because I think certainly when I was a student, I, I assumed the Templars were just a few guys fighting out in the Middle East, uh, primarily French. You know, it was kind of, it's, you know, that's not, it's not 100% untrue, but it's way, way off the real truth. And the, to me, the, one of the beautiful things about the Templars was they had this fabulous uh, clarity of purpose. And it had a very almost sublime strategy that allowed them to carry out with almost, with very few resources, great things over 200 years. And they had a kind of corporate memory and a corporate strategy that I think any organization would be would be proud to have much much better than a lot of our current governments for instance you know who've got huge resources and just messed it all up the, the to me the the key division in the Templar strategy was if you think there's a central point and the central point is they exist to help the papacy and and Christendom as a whole defend the Christian communities of the Middle East so that's that's the objective defending the Christian Middle East Within that, the Templars split into two parts. There's the um, sort of standing army. And those lads that are garrisoned in the Middle East, they're in what we now currently call um, Israel, Lebanon, Turkey, bits of Syria, uh, Jordan, and so on. And they're, they're manning castles, they're in the front of the charges, they're doing all the kind of hard glamorous, real sharp tip of the spear stuff that they're famous for. But that is literally just one half. The other half is what they do in, in the West. So there's kind of an Eastern strategy, which is basically a kind of uh, multinational um, standing army. So there's, there's French guys there, there's, but there's also you know people from all over Europe, including a lot of Brits fighting out there. And in the West, every part of Western Europe has a by and large, has a Templar presence. And in that presence, they try to do what they can peacefully for the crusading movement. So they're, they're trying to persuade kings to go on crusade. They're trying to um, gather donations of land so they can 
raise cash crops and send money to pay for mercenaries. Um, they're, they're ingratiating themselves with governments, trying to make governments more productive and more stable, not because they're um, you know, Mother Teresa or anything. They're not doing this for altruistic reasons. They're doing it because they want to be trusted and they want to be given lots of money. And with that money, they can, they can again try and achieve that corporate objective. So you've got these two very different um, substrands of the strategy, which is peace in the West and, and war in the East. But both parts of them work harmoniously together to, to achieve the ultimate objective, which is to fight for the Christian communities in the Middle East. Um, and, and the British Templars, to me, are a very good example of this. So what I try to do in the book is look at the British Templars in the round. So we, we try and follow the careers of the uh, British Templar soldiers fighting out in, in the Holy Land and what they, what they got up to. You know, there's some, um, we don't know a huge amount about them. And as individuals, it's often difficult to see. But we get glimpses into the quite huge, almost, it's like science fiction, some of the stuff. You know, you find, you know, Brits... Brits end up running the most of the standing army in Lebanon, for instance, and nearly killing Saladin's predecessor. So wild, wild stuff happening out over there. And at the same time, you try and focus on what the British Templars are doing in Britain. So they're, 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 they're advisors to kings, they're lobbyists, they're inventing investment banking, you know, which may or may not be a good thing, but you know, they certainly used it to good effect. They're, they're accountants, they're administrators, they're at the heart of agriculture. Um, so it's that combination of two different sets of great skills working harmoniously. And I, I find it um, yeah, awesome, really, as just how, how people with so few resources can, can do so much. It's really, I've, I thought, you know, reading through it, it's really ahead of their time, actually, to have those two split strategies and very corporate way of thinking. You know, we have this strategy in these spaces and we're doing you know, what modern businesses do today with governments. And we have this separate strategy out in the, the East. It was really interesting to see those those dynamics yeah. play out and how they supported one another. But how, yeah. how were the Templars set up? How did they come into being then? They, we have to go back to the First Crusade. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, it, the foundation actually tells the whole story, really. The, if you think back to the First Crusade, so it's a, it's a heavily armed pilgrimage, really. And the guys go off. In huge numbers to to try and uh, offer help to the to the old ancient Christian communities of the Holy Land, and actually the majority we tend to forget the majority of the population of that part of the Middle East were still Christian in the twelfth and thirteenth century. So it's not it's not that they were, um, uh, you know, totally invading a Muslim country. The majority of the population was still Christian. Um, the the first Crusade arrived, and Probably, you know, against the odds, really. I think it was quite, they were helped by lucky circumstances, but they also fought incredibly well, incredibly bravely. They, they did actually make it through and, and they did capture Jerusalem. And that was a real turning point. Um, and I think for a lot of the guys, people thought, oh, brilliant, that's great. You know, we can, yeah, job done, I'm, I'm off. And, and the majority of them did go back very soon afterwards because they thought of it as a pilgrimage. And if you think of it, um, that's what a pilgrimage is. You go somewhere, you make your presence known, and then you, job done, you go home, see your wife you haven't seen for five years or, or whatever. Um, but depending on how you interpret a crusade, you could argue that that is just the beginning. It's not the end. And and so you had, so the crusaders effectively divided into two. There were the people who thought it was job done, it's over, and the people who thought the job's just starting, 
because the key thing is that Jerusalem, which is you know the the epicenter of of Christian belief, um, is almost entirely indefensible. It's it's an inland city. It's underpopulated. It's got problems with food and water. It's it's a nightmare from a military point of view. So what you had when when most of the lads went home was you had a tiny group of guys who'd achieved far too much. And they had this kind of liability. So now this tiny group of, of effectively leftover soldiers have got this, the liability of protecting and defending uh, the Holy Land and particularly Jerusalem, which is an absolute nightmare. And, and at the time, um, people struggled with how you do that. And they set up different crusader states, uh, which, which you know, were, did their best. But these were very poor, very underpopulated um, sort of kingdoms. So... If, what in effect happened was that the papacy stepped in and started to create ways in which resources could be channeled from the West towards the East. And again, there's a, there's a kind of beauty about that strategy, which I, I find very attractive. And and the Templars were, were at the forepoint of that. Effectively, they were just a few guys, um, no more than a dozen, nine, ten dozen men, who... who in, in effect, were the, were the kind of bouncers. They were the security team for the Holy Sepulchre because there were a lot of holy relics there. And, and the guys started off in a very, very small way. But, but they, it, was, it became clear that that was the germ of a very good idea. And that idea was how on earth do we channel resources from the kingdoms of the West, which are always going to be kind of selfish, inward-looking. Every king has got something better to do than, than to go off to the Middle East uh, someplace. It's almost like for us, it'd be like traveling to the moon. You know, it's it's such an outlandish thing to do. It's like, how can we get resources out of a very unproductive West and, and transport it and convert it into troops for the East? And the Templars were a way of doing that uh, right from the beginning. So having Templar recruits and volunteers was a way of getting men to go back out there. And having the Templars working closely with kings and princes in the, in the West was a way of getting... Um, sort of money out there as well. And the combination of those two things, men and material, was was what it needed. And they, I think you made a very good point earlier, and that is the modernity. You know, the, in, the idea is so far ahead of its time. If you think of, um, uh, of the current situation, so the EU still hasn't been able to get its act together to have uh, a common military presence or a common foreign policy or any common way in which they can um, express policy or force. So there is, even now, there's no, you know, we, we can't manage that kind of multinational force. So it was a huge step forward that in such a fragmented, low, low, you know, low productive economy world, they managed to produce a multinational standing army for a, for a place that was so far away, might as well have been on the moon. And then, and similarly, they, they invented, as they went along, what was effectively a kind of multinational um, multi-professional services organization in the West. You know, you have the accountants, you've got the lawyers, you've got the lobbyists, you've got all the kind of investment bankers, modern professional services in one bundle. And it's and obviously it's very embryonic, but but again, it is just such a strange, beautiful symmetry and so ahead of its time that I, I just find it incredibly exciting, really. And it's it's really interesting to to see those services develop because they see a need for them. But but how does this how does this I'm, I'm I'm trying to trying to understand how does it go from being an organisation of ten twelve people guarding some holy relics to this multinational corporation with lobbyists lawyers doctors uh, and and a standing army? Yeah, 
Yeah, well, I mean, the key key point happened very very quickly um, in in the eleven twenties. Uh, the kings of Jerusalem were trying to recover Damascus. Damascus used to be a Christian city. Um, it had been captured by the the Muslims from I think from the seventh century, um, and it had been taken over by the Turks in the eleventh century. So the kings of Jerusalem wanted to try and recover Damascus because I think they 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 understood they had a very good sense of strategy as well, which we never give them credit for. But that's that's maybe another conversation. But um, they they realised that if they were going to survive, they had to have some kind of defence in depth, and they had to have big population centres. Because if you look at the Crusader states, we 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 look at them, you know, we look at them in minute detail. But in fact, they're just this kind of thin strip that's hanging on the edge of a massive um, set of Islamic um, states and empires. So they're they're really indefensible over the long term, unless you can kind of break into something the hinterland and get some big population centres. So they were trying to recapture Jerusalem, um, Damascus. And the way that they wanted to do that was to get help from the Byzantines, which was great, you know, the Orthodox Christians. So they'd send out embassies for that. But they also wanted to get help from the West. So the kings of Jerusalem sent out embassies to the West. And and, um, the the embryonic Templars were sent out to accompany that kind of uh, diplomatic mission. And they had a little mission of their own. And uh, they actually went off recruiting lobbying and they were incredibly attractive i mean as a as an iconic group it was clear that there was just a little bit it's like shakespeare you know there was magic in the air when they got there they they were so unusual that they were a a religious order but they were also military you know these were tough big muscular guys who for the first time the kings and the princes could relate to. So the, the upper classes, the, the, the guys with money in Europe could really relate to these people. So these people, you know, by and large, most people were pious uh, in, in the world in those days. And, but most people also had quite muscular lives. Um, and for the, for the kings and the, the secular people of Europe, this was a huge wake-up call. And for, for the first time, they had an opportunity to participate in the Crusades over the longer term in a way that was very attractive. They could, they could be pious, they could be part of a, a religious order, but they also could, could be chivalrous. Uh, they, could, they could show their military skills. They could be comrades in arms. You know, there was a lot that was very attractive there. So when, when the, the Templars did this initial kind of lobbying mission, it was hugely successful and they raised lots of recruits uh, they raised lots of money, and and certainly in in England and Scotland in particular, they they were instantly became a big hit. They were great advisors to King David in Scotland, and and really ingratiated themselves with the English crown. Started getting lots of estates. Lots of people volunteered to you know for the cause. And even in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, you can see there are a lot of people joining this Damascus adventure. As, as they don't mention the Templars by name, but we know that the Templars were there. Um, doing their work as well, and it was it was from that point that they, it all really took off, and the, and the, the logic stayed with it after that. I mean, I can see, I can certainly see the attraction. You know, if there's something that you can relate to, why not? Why not be involved in it? But I, I kind of want to, you know, your book's mainly about the British Templars, so I want to I want to refocus on onto the British uh, the British part of the the organisation. You know, England is not particularly i think i'm being generous now to, to england england was not politically stable at this point um you know you have a lot of succession issues over mighty barons and, and nobilities 
you know, how does how does the order kind of operate uh, and 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 seek to seek to keep itself going within the period called the anarchy um and and then again afterwards in a more stable period during henry the second's reign yeah no you're absolutely right i mean it's a challenge definitely a challenge um but the order created a template uh in the anarchy which i think worked very well and it's the template went back to their core strategy really which is you know in the west where the stabilizing influence and again not because we're you know, too altruistic is because that is the best way forward for everyone. So during the anarchy, um, they they actually worked well with both sides. Well, and and to say both sides is probably a simplification. You know, all sides really. You know what it's like. It's, the world is so fragmented. Then um, that they were they were very um, popular with that, the Empress Matilda um, and her son, and they were they were very generous patrons and started kickstarted a lot of the Templar Templar estates. But they were also very very popular with Stephen and and his wife, Queen Matilda, a different one, two Matildas, you know. But and but the one thing that the two Matildas did have in common was they both loved the Templars. They were both um substantial donors in their own right. And that's that's again something I tried to bring out in the book is the the way in which there is, you know, the the, the Templars are not the most feminine of organizations. They didn't really even have female associates, but they definitely had very good working relationships with with you know powerful female characters and they could and you know, they got on very well with them in, in certain cases. So, so the, the economic side of it was, was good. And, and the, the basis of that was trust. You know, they were trustworthy. Both sides could trust them. And they, they could be used in civil wars, uh, for instance, later with King John, uh, for moving hostages, taking prisoners from one side to the other, transporting money, things that you really need high levels of trust. And both sides in a civil war were able to trust them. Having said that, it's also in the, in the anarchy that you see the foundations of the basic Templar strategy, which is you have to side with the existing uh, establishment, not because you necessarily like them or because you want to go on a beach holiday with them. You know, you can actually morally not be on their side, but you do you hang with them because the establishment is the only way in which a crusade could get launched you know in the middle of a civil war nobody's going to go on crusade you need that civil war to stop as soon as possible and once it stopped you want to be on the winning side that is the establishment figure king or queen whether you like them or not they're the ones you've got to work with and you try and make their position as good as possible so they can do as much as possible for the crusading movement so you find in reigns like king john um, and personally, I find there's very little to like about King John. You know, he was not a good man. He had his little ways. And um, sometimes no one spoke to him for days and days and days. And I, I think they kind of held their noses when they were working with people like that. But they were they were trusted by by John, as they were by pretty much all the English kings and and, and queens, and worked very well with them and did did things that you wouldn't necessarily expect. But if you if you take a step back and look at the strategy and you realize that there is a corporate process and strategy here that is in place for 200 years, it's hugely impressive. You have to keep reminding yourself that's what they're doing. It's not about individuals. It's not about families. It's about this corporate view and, and how that impressively rolls out for centuries. It's it's really impressive to see like to see even through you know Stephen and, and Henry that they always have that singular goal in mind 
to to work on those crusader states to work in the crusades and it's it's really impressive to see you know when when europe doesn't particularly have very clear coherent goals that one organization does but the what the the success of the henry ii richard the first is a, a huge figure in crusading and you know he's, he's probably the thing he's known for here in in england how do the british templars support richard in his his crusading efforts yeah absolutely i mean he he richard is in some ways it's their dream come true yeah or the, it's the dream for the british templars so he's he's the case study of how it should work you know basically say so you've you've supported the the establishment um you know you're you're trusted by richard's father you're trusted by you know all the all, you know you've been trusted by everybody and You've been in the background lobbying. You've been helping to train the troops. You've been drip feeding ideas about strategy into their ears as they're going along. And then suddenly you get this fabulous guy takes over. So just by the, you know, the accident of DNA and, and uh, you know, biology, you end up with somebody in charge who not only wants to go on crusade and to support the movement, but is actually a very gifted military figure, a very gifted general. So so for them, it's absolutely perfect. And you can see the whole organization, Templar organization in Britain and beyond, just kind of springs into action. And they make, well, firstly, it's hard to, hard to prove it definitively, but it's pretty obvious that they do a lot of training in the background. Uh, because when the, when the when the when Richard and the English troops and his all his French troops get out to the Middle East, they really know what they're doing. They're operating well against Turkic light cavalry that they've never encountered in Western Europe. Clearly, that that doesn't happen by accident. They're they're able to do a you know a fighting march down the coast of Palestine in a very intricate formation that nobody in Europe ever uses because they don't need to because they're not facing Turkic like you know mounted archers. So, so it's clear that they're, they're working in the background with military advice and uh, as well as volunteers themselves. And they provide a kind of an elite, together with the other military orders like the Hospitlers, they provide a kind of an elite um, cavalry unit for him as well. But, but above that, what you find also is that they instantly change their organizational structures to, to face Richard and to let him know that they're on his side. So... Um, Robert de Sable, who's, who's one of Richard's um, liege, liege men, uh, very powerful, noble, uh, becomes one of Richard's admirals and leading military commanders. He's also a great diplomat. He helps negotiate in Cyprus and so on. And he becomes the Templar Grand Master. So the, this, this British Templar becomes not just head of the master of the British Templars, he actually becomes the Grand Master of the, the whole order. And so he's by Richard's side. Um, helping him all of, all the way, and his men are there helping him all the way. So the British Templars would have gone out to the east with Richard and and with their new Grand Master, and and they'd have been been working with Richard. And you and you find that the big battles they're they're right up there with him, doing doing good work. So yeah, it's they just go for it hell for leather, and it's it's the, it's the culmination of their strategy, um, and it's beautiful to see it in action. And I, I I agree with that point. You know, reading through your book it is it is beautiful to finally see the the Templars operating at a point where they want to operate with someone who wants to operate with them. But but not long after this, there's you know there's some issues with the Crusader states and the Crusader states start to to fail uh, and and start to collapse. With the Crusader states being so central to the Templars, the Templars' way of life and their organisational structure, how do they 
try and stay relevant and important in in political life and how do they try and stay financially viable with this happening yeah yeah you're right i mean obviously they're operating within a broad geopolitical context and and the the christian presence in the middle east as you know as as we were saying is is very much fringe you know we we can over exaggerate how important the crusades were but they were kind of a little fringe on the edge of a huge huge islamic empire stretching all the way over to to afghanistan um so the crusader states are in decline the templars are doing everything they can to to slow down that process so they're manning yeah you know, they're building the best castles they're manning them they're they're at the forefront of, of battles but they're so outnumbered by this point you know you're dealing with huge armies, the Mongols suddenly start to appear, the Mamluks are there in huge force. Um, they, they become, the whole of the Crusader states become a bit part player, really, in a, in a grand play where they're, the, the, the main reason they still survive is because the different, um, their different opponents uh, are more interested in fighting each other. They're very much, they become spectators, really, which, which is good and bad. Um, you know, at least the spectator survives. So the Templars are there in their great castles, and they're doing their best, and they're fighting a lot. But but ultimately, they're no, you know, they're they're not really the focus of attention. So, and they carry on in the West as well. So they're trying to bring resources over, and they support crusades. Uh, for instance, Edward the First, just before he became Edward the First, when he was, uh, you know, Prince Edward, came came over and launched his own little crusade, and the Templars were with him, did did what they could. He. Uh, he survived an assassination attempt, and there were stories that the Templars, um, a, had had advised him not to get into that position, um, keep to keep the assassin at arm's length, but also that helped, even to the point of giving him medical aid afterwards, uh, helping him with the poison, you know, cope with the poisoned knife, and so on. So they they were doing everything they could, but I think you quite rightly touched on the key point, which is relevance, and you do get to a point where ultimately the Templars. And all of the Crusaders are so hugely outnumbered. There's only a few hundred Templars out there. You can't stop major geopolitical forces. It's, you know, you're facing a tsunami. What, what can you do? You can do your best, but you're probably not going to win. You would not bet on the Crusader states to survive. And inevitably, they didn't. The, the, the last big cities fell in 1291, particularly Acre, and the Templars did a huge amount, you know, to, to help with defending it. But, you know, the, it was unwinnable. By that point, it was an unwinnable war. The problem with the Templars, and this is where their strategy went from the sublime to the ridiculous, was that they failed to adjust. And if you were if you were doing a kind of a business case study of the Templars, which I actually think is very, very, a very clear case study, it's it's the story is in a way there are two stories. The first story is how a small organization with a great strategy and clarity can do well. But the second story is how you need to make sure that strategy remains relevant and adapts. And that was where the Templars really fell down. They, they had no adaptive quality in them at the end. So when the Crusader states collapsed, they were still selling one idea. And that one idea was, we've got feet on the ground in the Middle East, and we can we can defend the Holy Land. And that clearly was no longer true. They, they didn't have enough troops to do anything. They couldn't reinvade the Middle East. They'd lost the Middle East, they couldn't, you know, they, they'd very visibly failed and they refused to move with the time. So the Teutonic Knights went ahead and, and reinvented themselves. They had a, had a role on the other Eastern Front and the Hospitlers carried on fighting in, in Rhodes and later Malta. Um, and also, you know, they had other things to do as well. They were actually working with, with the sick 
like, you know, clues in the name. But the Templars refused to do that. They could have amalgamated with the Hospitallers, and there was powerful, overwhelming logic for it, but they were too stubborn. And I, I think that that second corporate business case study is is just as interesting. It's the cataclysmic consequences of, of failure to have an adaptive strategy. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love to do more work on that. It's um, To me, it's very, very powerful. I, I really like that point about the, the business case studies because it kind of makes it it makes it it brings it into a way that we can understand and, and relate to modern modern life but there's there's two points that you you brought out within that answer that i really want to to touch on and dive into a little bit more you know, so the temp the templars are a massive uh, a massive force uh, and 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 big figures in the middle east how do you know these other these other empires the mamluks the ayyubids uh, and the mongols how do they see the the templars yeah there's in the same ways, we have a, a quite an extreme view of them. I think they did as well in some ways, um, quite polarised. So on the one hand, although we have a view of the Templars as being fanatical and possibly anti-Islamic, and on the ground, that was not the case at all. Um, although they were, the, they were the best fighters, but for, certainly from a from their opponent's point of view, they, because they'd been on the ground for so long, they... They knew the politics, they knew how the game played out, and they were people that you could deal with. Again, they were trusted. So by and large, if, uh, if uh, an Islamic uh, government was negotiating with the Franks, they, they quite often preferred to deal with people like the Templars because they knew, they knew how to do it and, and they could generally be relied on to try and deliver. That doesn't mean they liked them, but they, they were people you could do business with. Whereas Crusaders, you know, they can just be a bunch of nutters who are, who are visiting for a few months. They're never going to know the real situation and they're going to behave quite irrationally. So, so I think from an Islamic point of view, you'd rather deal with the Templars than the alternatives um, in, in, in the case of the Crusaders. The other, the other thing is, I think that they, there was this kind of grudging respect. They were, they were known as the best warriors of Europe, the, the best of the Frankish soldiers. And that, um, again, that's not, that's not, to say that there was a great affection there, uh, but there was recognition that they were great fighters. So, for instance, Saladin, who for reasons I've never never understood, has a reputation for being chivalrous, used, used to routinely uh, murder prisoners. But, but the Templars and the Hospitallers were particularly singled out for quick murder, not, not for any particular reason other than the fact that they were so good. The, the one thing you didn't, and there were so few of them. So if you captured, like after the Battle of Hattin, a couple of hundred Templars and Hospitallers, um, you didn't want them being ransomed and coming back and facing you the next year. So he just he just put a line in the sand, just just had them all beheaded. Uh, and similarly, you find that with you know the the Mamluks in the thirteenth century, uh, Baybars would would routinely or certainly very often to execute Templar prisoners rather than letting them free because he didn't want to see them again. They were too dangerous. Again, you know, you're seeing those same kind of beliefs from western europe politically in the east where they're respecting them then they're seeing them as reliable figures to interact with and the second point from that answer that i kind of wanted to pick up on was was edward prince edward at that point later king edward you know a formidable uh, man king military leader and in, in your book you use this phrase uh, he's the last throw of the dice which i thought was a lovely phrase could you kind of unpack that you know why did the templars see him as that last throw of the dice i guess he he was or could have been the 13th century equivalent of richard so he was he was an english king or english prince 
you know, in line to the throne, who was a natural general. And, you know, the, the Templars were working with the English crown the whole time. So they knew that he was he was a good fighter and he was, you know, on their side. So he was somebody who was a Templar fan. Um, he respected them hugely. Uh, and and he had, you know, like Richard, the, the, the kind of motivation to go out to the East. He was, you know, genuinely pious, genuinely bolshy. And genuinely a good general. I mean, it was so, so, so from for the from the Templars' perspective, it was fabulous that you could get someone doing that. The trouble was by the 13th century, um, as we were saying, the, the the Crusader states are such bit part players that, however much Western rulers might want to help, you're kind of throwing you know good money after bad. And I think a lot of people, although they would genuinely like to help, um, there is there is this underlying reticence because how realistic is it? You know, are you just delaying the inevitable? And I, th- I think, it, you know, the smart money would not be betting on the Crusader states. But to be honest, the smart money would never bet on the Crusader states. But in the 13th century, you you know, you really, uh, no gambling man would do that. And and so someone like Edward I was wonderful, but it was the last throw. You know, it was the last English king that could put a lot of resource into it. And in fact, Edward did say that he wanted to go back. He did do one uh, rather... I guess rather ineffective. It's quite sad, really. You look at what Edward actually achieved when he went out there, and he was a you know he was a good military guy, and he had some troops with him. But the troop numbers were so small that they'd you know they'd train and get ready, and then they'd go out and raid a village, uh, which is probably an ex-Christian village or still a Christian village, and they'd go in there, steal a bit of food, and then they'd dash back before the Muslim armies arrived because they knew that they'd be overwhelmed if if they didn't. So. It, it was all a little bit, you know, it was all a bit desperate by then, you know. And the guys, whenever you left the big cities, if you if you took an English army out of the big cities there, there was very little upside. The, you know, the most you could do is wander over and beat up a couple of villages and, you know, burn down a few villages, which had been Christian anyway. Um, and, and the downside was so huge. The downside was if you got caught, it would be a massacre. Everybody would be overwhelmed. So... From a strategic point of view, there's not a lot to be gained in the 13th century, I don't think. And Edward tried, did his best, and he, he kept saying he'd go back. He always said his heart was in the Holy Land. And he, but the trouble is, by the time, you know, by 1291, the whole of the area had been lost. There wasn't anything to come back to. Um, so just, however much he liked crusading and liked the Templars, it was just an unwinnable thing at that point. It's, it's really sad to see an organisation and a leader be able to put their full weight behind something that they truly believed in. They'd organized themselves around for, for 200 years. And I think, I think that kind of brings us very nicely hmm. to Friday, the 13th of October, 1307 <laughs> in, in, in France. Um, so what, why is this date significant and, and how does the events surrounding this date affect the British Templars? Well, this is, this is the, I think it's the biggest news story of the Middle Ages, really. I mean, it's the biggest headline. It's the ultimate heroes to zeros thing. You know, 12th of October, the Templars are still the poster boys of Christendom. They're the, the best knights, the most chivalrous knight. They're the, you know, the kind of the James Bond of the uh, medieval military world. On the 13th of October, they're, they're a bunch of heretical, satanistic um cat bottom lickers, you know, who who are on trial and 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 the whole order is being closed down. So there's this huge swing from uh, from one extreme to the other. 
And um, but just this kind of very, very briefly, the French monarchy closed their, their Templars down. That was the headquarters of the Templar order. There was a weak Pope who they browbeat into, into letting them do that. Um, but in, and, 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 you know, under torture, they forced, they either killed Templars or forced them to uh, perjure themselves by agreeing to ridiculous statements about, you know, worshipping Satan and being traitors to Christendom and so on. I don't believe any of it. I, I don't think many people do, really. But but this created an awfully difficult situation for the Templars in the other provinces. So in the province of Britain, if you look at, you know, say England, Ireland, Scotland, they were, um, people were shocked. And actually, if you look at particularly the English establishment, they, and and, and um, Edward II, who'd just come to the throne then, he's, Edward II is in a very weak position. He's not even been crowned. He's so new on the throne, he hasn't had time to be crowned yet. And and here, here are his closest, some of his closest friends and advisors, people that have always been in his royal household. He knew that his dad, you know, rated them incredibly highly, trusted them totally. And suddenly he's being told by the French king, no, sorry, mate, you're wrong. They're all heretics they worship satan i mean crazy stuff so instead of closing down the order the you find the english establishment is full of incredulity really and edward edward ii writes to various other monarchs around europe saying come on guys we can't take this seriously we've got to you know we can't do this the templars are great they've been great great friends forever um but eventually because the 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 papacy is is so weak at this point that kind of the English establishment is gradually forced to at least make a show of arresting the Templars. So they're still trusted. I, I you know they, you find that they've been arrested at certain points, uh, and then you go back to the records and you find oh that actually they're all still living on their estates or they're riding around on their own horses or you find the king then sending as soon as soon as an Inquisition party arrives the king has to send notes to all the sheriffs saying. Oh, uh, do you remember I told you to arrest the uh, the Templars? Could you make sure that you actually have arrested them? You know, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of letters there that are just covering, it's back, back covering. You know, there's probably, these sheriffs are friendly with the king. The king's probably told them verbally, you know, the Templars are still our friends, don't worry too much. But then they has to be seen to send out another letter saying, oh yeah, you know, let's arrest them again uh, because they should have all been lo- under lock and key the whole time anyway. So the, so the English... Monarchy is very, very slow in arresting the Templars. And the process just grinds on and on. You find people really don't want to take part. I don't think people really believed it. If you look in Ireland, for instance, the people were, the guys were just quietly pensioned off. In fact, there were even English refugee Templars there who nobody bothered to even question. You know, everybody knew they were there. They were being paid a government pension. So there's no question they were hiding. But they didn't even bother to question them because they just wanted the whole, I think they wanted the whole affair to go away. They thought the Templars were innocent. They thought the King of France um, was greedy, uh, and I think they were right. And they didn't want to do what the King of France was going to tell them to do anyway. I think by within over over the the several years that the Templar trials ground on, it became clear that the Templars were redundant. Um, I, you know, hard to argue with that, and that their their image was so irredeemably spoiled. By that point, that there wasn't anything left to protect, you know, as an organisation, it was the kind of. If we go back to our business case study thing, you know, they, the, the reputational damage of their inability to have an adaptive strategy meant that there was nothing left to save. So certainly in England, some of the 
some of the guys went into hospitaler houses. So effective, in effect, they may have become hospitalers. But they, you know, there were there weren't many of them. They were quite old. In in reality, most people just got pensioned off. It was it's a sad ending, but it's not a brutal ending. In France, there was the brutality of of murdering, you know tens and hundreds of people and torturing them in in england and ireland and as far as we know in scotland we don't know much about scotland um it was it was by and large peaceful kind of sad that it had to end that way but you know the templars were partly at fault because they they hadn't changed themselves you know they hadn't adapted in the way that the hospitalers had and like you said i think more than anything it is sad but it's lovely to see that 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 very close relationship with the British monarchy and, and several British kings does pay dividends towards the end where it's it's allowed them to to kind of get away relatively scot-free compared to their their French comrades. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I mean, that um, it's interesting that when you do hear about Templar renegades, and I know conspiracists love Templar renegades because that's how you can create wonderful armies to win Bannockburn and, you know, do crazy stuff like that. But when you do hear of genuine renegades, they're not going to France, which would be the natural place to flee to. Because if you if you get captured in France, you get tortured to death. Uh, they tended to escape to either they went to ground with their family, one assumes, of tiny numbers, or, or, or went to Ireland, where basically they <laughs> the government started paying them, you know, and gave them their pensions. I mean, it's extraordinary, really. So, yeah, it's, it is a sad ending. But uh, I think the other thing is that the, there, there were structural differences between England and France in the legal systems. In, in France, they had more of a tradition of dealing with heretics, like the Cathars, and there, were, there was an inquisition, and uh, there was more government control over the judiciary, and there was more access to torture. So that's a kind of heady cocktail that if you've got um, a kind of to- a, a more totalitarian bent to your government, you that, those are powerful weapons. And I, I think that's really what you see in France is that how it's the impact of torture, really. Once if you've got a legal system that lets you do it and tortures people, you can get people to say whatever you want. Really, you can, you know, you can torture them until they die. And then what their friends will say, okay, you know, I'm, I don't want my bones amputated and burnt off I'll, I'll say whatever you want whereas in England there was there was no major history of heresy there was no major tradition of, of uh, inquisition and the judiciary was not 100% independent but it was it was much more independent so there was you know there were juries um, there was no no recourse to torture by and large there may have been a little bit at the end but by and large, it was a very different system and a very different legal structure. And again, there's something to be proud of as a Brit, actually, in in these in these tough times. That that you know, in those situations, there was there was a better outcome because there were better systems in place. No, I I, I totally agree with you on that. You know, it is it is something where we can be quite proud of our our legacy of not torturing people as much as possibly the French. <laughs> So I have a final fun question for you, Steve, as we do for everyone who comes on the podcast. Now, you have written extensively on the Crusades. You've got some amazing books on them. But who is your favourite character from this period? Wow, that's a good question. I'd have to say it's it's probably a couple rather than just one, but they're, but they're relatives. So if, we, if I can extend that with kind of a DNA individual. I, I, love, yeah. <laughs> I love the early kings of Jerusalem. Uh, the Baldwins, you know, Baldwin one, Baldwin two, they're um, and Baldwin three. They're all great guys, and again, it comes back to the almost your first 
question really, which is, you know, why do you like these people? And it's, it's because they were poor, permanently in danger, completely stressed, and with a huge burden of responsibility for, you know, the communities that they were trying to defend. And I just see these guys getting out of bed every day and onto their horse and doing remarkable things, um, you know, as I go down the library. So, no, I, I really, uh, I really admire those, the early kings of Jerusalem and, and what they, yeah, what they achieved and just just how they managed to keep going, you know, in the face of very, very difficult circumstances. I, I think that's a, a fantastic answer. Uh, I think, you know, I do really, I really feel for those early kings of Jerusalem uh, because they are, like you said, they are in such a difficult position that it doesn't look like there's a lot of ways out, and if you you try and take the easy way out, you're gonna you're gonna lose a lot of lives. So I think that's a fantastic answer. Now, obviously, Steve, you know I've I've absolutely loved your book, and our listeners are gonna want to go away, gra- grab a copy of your book, and interact with you online. So where can they get a copy of your book uh, and find you? Yeah, thanks, Jasna. Uh, the uh, Amazon, uh, obviously, or local independent bookshops, which I, I always love too. Um, or the Yale Yale website has uh, this is a Yale book and uh, as as of my last two books been and they make Yale do make beautiful books I mean that's they're just lovely physical things so yeah that's that's a good port of call um, I've got a website called stevetibble.com um, not very imaginative but does the job so uh, if you want to get in contact with me and ask a question please do um, if you want to write a review on Amazon, I'd really appreciate that, especially a good one, obviously. Um, but but yeah, no, I, I like I try and get on social media quite a bit. I'm on I'm on all the usual channels, um, and uh, yeah, so please do get in touch. I try to reply to everyone I can, um, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to to my next book next year as well. But I won't, I won't say too much about that. But again, that's going to be with Yale. So uh, yeah, and thank you, Jackson. You've been uh, a wonderful host and a great great questioner. Oh, thank you very much, Stephen. I appreciate I really appreciate that. I enjoyed having you on the podcast, so thank you for coming on. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the History of Jackson podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed listening to Steve talk about his brand new book, Templars, The Knights Who Made Britain. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes that we've produced here at History of Jackson, please do consider heading to the Buy Me A Coffee profile in the description below or to History of Jackson Plus on Apple Podcasts, where you can support History of Jackson to continue creating the content that we do for you guys on a weekly basis. So in the meantime, I look forward to talking to you all next week, where we have another awesome episode lined up for you guys to learn more history from.